Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1118, with a release and air date of Saturday, August 1st, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1118 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The FCC finds Hobby King almost $3 million for marketing unauthorized drone transmitters. The Hurricane WatchNet has been activated for the latest hurricane to hit the U.S. mainland. The AWRL board meets in a remote electronic meeting. We will tell you what was covered. The league launches a new series of online webinars in their new ham radio learning series. AMSAT partners with the University of Maine to develop that state's first CubeSat. Nomination signatures may now be submitted electronically for AWRL elections. Amateurs in New Zealand will get to enjoy 60 meters a bit longer, while hams in Australia get new call signs. And we will tell you a story about what happens when propagation conditions can be a matter of life or death. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will talk about the future and the yet-to-be-invented quantum computing. Australia's own Anno Benshop, VK6FLAB, asks, When you are on the air, what do you talk about? Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill takes a look at the state of amateur radio in the year 1958 and the beginning of RACES, the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Service. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will give us all some general tips on mounting an antenna on your tower. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in blue skies, sunny Albany, New York, although there is a storm coming, I'm George W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our Hurricane Outpost Watch here atop the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, where we await our first hurricane of the season, I'm Fred Fitty, November Fox 2 Fox. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off this week's news. The FCC has issued a forfeiture order calling for Hobby King to pay a fine of $2,861,128 for marketing drone transmitters that do not comply with FCC rules. For the latest on this story, we go to League Headquarters, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report. The FCC Enforcement Bureau investigation stemmed in part 
from a 2017 ARRL complaint that Hobby King was selling drone transmitters that operated on amateur and non-amateur frequencies, in some instances marketing them as amateur radio equipment. The fine affirms the monetary penalty sought in a June 2018 FCC Notice of Apparent Liability. The FCC said its investigation found that dozens of devices marketed by the company transmitted in unauthorized radio frequency bands and in some cases operated at excessive power levels. The FCC pointed out that it has previously made clear that, quote, Devices used in the amateur radio service do not require authorization prior to being imported into the United States, but devices for other services, including the CB service, require commission approval, unquote. The FCC investigation found that 65 models of devices marketed by Hobby King should have had FCC certification. Hobby King claimed to have ceased marketing the 65 models the FCC identified but promised only to make best efforts not to market other non-compliant RF devices. Such unlawful transmissions could interfere with key government and public safety services like aviation systems, the FCC said. We have fully considered Hobby King's response to the notice of apparent liability, which does not contest any facts, and includes only a variety of legal arguments, none of which we find persuasive, the FCC said in the forfeiture order. We therefore adopt the $2,861,128 forfeiture penalty proposed in the notice of apparent liability. Hobby King has a continuing obligation to market only radio frequency equipment that is properly authorized, the FCC said. We therefore remind Hobby King that continuing to market non-compliant radio frequency devices could result in further significant forfeitures. Hobby King has 30 days to pay the fine. If it fails to do so, the matter will be referred to the Department of Justice for collection. The Hurricane WatchNet activated on 14.325 MHz on July 31st at 1500 UTC as Hurricane Assayas heads toward the U.S. on an uncertain trajectory at that point. The Volusia County, Florida and State Emergency Operations Centers were reported at a Level 3 monitoring status. For years, I've said, just when you think you have Mother Nature figured out, she changes her mind, Hurricane WatchNet Manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, said. Shortly after Advisory 11 for then-Tropical Storm Assayas was issued, an Air Force Reserve Hurricane Hunter aircraft found that the tropical storm had strengthened to a hurricane. The maximum winds had increased to 80 miles per hour with higher gusts, making the storm a Category 1 hurricane. The National Hurricane Center forecast for 0900 UTC called for Assayas to strengthen into a Category 2 hurricane during the next 24 hours. Unfortunately, Isaias appears to be taking a somewhat similar track along the USD's coastline, such as Matthew in 2016 and Dorian in 2019, Graves said. Interests throughout the Bahamas, Florida, Georgia, South and North Carolina, and farther north need to keep a close watch on Isaias. This means the Hurricane Watchnet could be running another marathon activation. A National Hurricane Center advisory issued at 1500 UTC included a hurricane watch for portions of the Florida East Coast from north of Deerfield Beach northward to the Volusia-Brevard County line. 
A tropical storm warning has been issued for portions of the Florida East Coast from north of Ocean Reef northward to Sebastian Inlet and for Lake Okeechobee. As of 1500 UTC, the National Hurricane Center said the center of Hurricane Isaias was located near latitude 21.7 degrees north, longitude 74.5 degrees west, moving toward the northwest near 16 miles per hour, and a general northwestward motion with some decrease in forward speed is expected for the day or so followed by a turn toward the north-northwest. On the forecast track, the center of Isaias will continue to move near or over the southeastern Bahamas. Isaias is forecast to be near the central Bahamas tonight and move near or over the northwestern Bahamas on Saturday and near the east coast of the Florida Peninsula Saturday afternoon through Sunday. Tropical storm conditions are possible along portions of the Florida east coast beginning Saturday and a tropical storm watch remains in effect. While storm surge watches are not currently needed for this area, they may be required later today if the forecast track shifts closer to the coast. Heavy rains associated with Isaias may begin to affect south and east central Florida beginning late Friday night and the eastern Carolinas by early next week, potentially resulting in isolated flash and urban flooding, especially in low-lying and poorly drained areas. Isolated minor river flooding is possible in the Carolinas early next week, the National Hurricane Center said. Hurricane conditions and dangerous storm surges are expected in portions of the Bahamas today and Saturday, and hurricane warnings are in effect for these areas. Preparations to protect life and property should be rushed to completion. The Hurricane WatchNet seeks observed ground truth data from those in the affected area, including wind velocity and gusting, wind direction, barometric pressure, and, if available, rainfall, damage, and storm surge. Measured weather data is always appreciated, Graves noted. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Due to travel and gathering restrictions in place because of coronavirus pandemic, the ARRL Board of Directors met on Friday, July 17th in a remote session using Zoom video conferencing platform. During the session, the Board took the following actions. Accepted the final recommendations of the Board Planning Committee, Committee Chair and ARRL First Vice President Mike Raisback, K1TWF, introduced the motion to adopt the plan. An earlier draft of the plan was introduced at the board's in-person January meeting. After the January board meeting, the committee received and considered hundreds of comments from interested amateurs. The final band plan can be viewed on the ARRL website. Voted in anticipation of hiring new emergency management director to modify the charter of the search committee to study and, if appropriate, prepare a report on the implementation of a new standing committee of the board to emphasize emergency communication and provide advice to the CEO on these matters. The report is expected to be delivered to the board by November 24th. Created a standing order to give Programs and Services Committee the authority to approve, by vote, proposed rule changes for contests and awards. Accepted the financial reports from the Chief Financial Officer and Treasurer of the Finance and Investment Portfolio of the organization. 
modified the composition of ARRL Legal Defense and Assistance Committee and the guidelines for what activities would be funded. Amended the bylaw number 18 to conform to the changes made at the January board meetings regarding the selection period for division elections. Approved recipients of several awards, including the Hiram Percy Maxim Memorial Award. Acknowledged the efforts of the headquarters, staff in dealing with and maintaining operations during the pandemic, and discussed personnel matters in a committee as a whole. The meeting ended with the board recessing until a future as yet undetermined date when the meeting will be concluded, that is expected to be in four to five weeks, depending on circumstances and the ability to arrange a suitable meeting site. Minutes will be released once the meeting is concluded. A live presentation from ARRL North Texas Section Manager Aaron Hewlett, K8AMH, inaugurated the new ARRL Learning Network on Tuesday, July 28th. With more details on this exciting new webinar series, we go to League Headquarters where Steve Ford, WD8IMY, files this report. A live presentation from ARRL North Texas Section Traffic Manager Aaron Hewlett, K8AMH, inaugurated the new ARRL Learning Network on Tuesday, July 28th. The webinar series features 30-minute presentations from experienced amateurs covering a variety of topics and interests. Hewlett's webinar, Relay Stations and the Art of Traffic Handling, introduced techniques and skills practiced by radio amateurs like himself who relay messages during emergencies, disasters, and other instances that interrupt conventional telecommunications, including the Internet. Through an overview of the ARRL National Traffic System, Hewlett shared examples of preparing a radiogram and resources for finding traffic nets and other volunteers. The webinars are hosted using a GoToMeeting platform. Members are invited to ask questions during each webinar, and a 15-minute question-and-answer period follows each presentation for those who could participate longer. Aaron hit a home run, said Bob Inderbitson, NQ1R, a RRL product development manager and moderator for the Hewlett's webinar. His presentation was the perfect balance of knowledge, sharing, and enthusiasm that will surely motivate other members to try their hand at traffic handling. A recording of the webinar is available for members to view. A running list of upcoming live presentations is available, and prospective attendees may register on the same page. ARRL members must first log into the League website. Here's a quick look at a few of the upcoming webinars. HF Wire Antennas with George Cooley, NG7A, scheduled for Thursday, August 6th at 12.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time or 3.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's 19.30 UTC. Introduction to Digital FM Modes with Corey Chandler Sr., WA5RR, scheduled for Tuesday, August 11th, 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, or 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's 0000 UTC on Wednesday, August 12th. Introduction to Computer Logging with Steve Lott-Smith, KG5VK, scheduled for Thursday, August 13th, 12.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 3.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's 19.30 UTC. Capture the Magic of Six Meters with Jim Wilson, K5ND, scheduled for Tuesday, August 18th, 10 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's 1700 UTC. The sport of finding hidden transmitters on foot 
with Robert Fry, WA6EZV, ARRL Amateur Radio Direction Finding Committee, scheduled for Thursday, August 20th, 12.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 3.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's 19.30 UTC. Interbitson encourages other members to be considered for future ARRL Learning Network webinars by inviting them to complete a call for speakers form. It's all about members helping members. What better way to grow greater participation in amateur radio? The Hurricane Watch Net activated on July 25th for Hurricane Hannah, the first hurricane of the Atlantic hurricane season. When the net activated, the storm was poised to make landfall along the Gulf of Mexico as a Category 1 storm with maximum sustained winds of 75 miles per hour. After it came ashore on the Texas coast, extensive property damage was reported in the Rio Grande Valley, the brunt of it south of Corpus Christi, which experienced storm surge flooding and tropical storm winds. Areas to the south saw sustained hurricane force winds. By the time Hurricane Hannah was downgraded to a tropical depression near the border of the United States and Mexico, at least four people were dead and four others were missing. Amateur radio operators were emerging from several tense hours of communications that began on the morning of Saturday the 25th of July. Southeast Texas and the Barrier Islands braced for the storm where reports said Hannah was to make landfall. The amateur radio station at the National Hurricane Center, WX4NHC, activated and had the support of the VOIP hurricane net where hams activated to provide ground truth data including surface and damage reports. HAMS in the Corpus Christi and Brownsville areas, or those with relays into those areas, called into the VOIP hurricane net using Skywarn reporting criteria. HAMS used modes including Echolink, IRLP, and AllStar, with two other HAMS using the private telephone network HAMSHACK hotline. The year 2020 has been a strange year in every way, and the weather is no different, Hurricane Watch Net Manager Bobby Graves' KB5HAV said last weekend. Just a few hours ago, it looked as though we would be activating for Hurricane Gonzalo. Well, that storm had other ideas. The same can be said for what had been Tropical Storm Hannah in the Gulf of Mexico. All along, it looked as though this storm would make landfall as a tropical storm. The net activated on 14.325 MHz, its primary net frequency, and operated simultaneously on 7.268 MHz. The Hurricane Watch net remained active for several hours, working in cooperation with WX4NHC at National Hurricane Center. Hurricane Watch net volunteers gather observed ground truth weather data from the affected area. We are also able to provide backup communication to official agencies such as emergency operation centers, Red Cross officials, and storm shelters in the affected area, Graves added. In addition, the Hurricane Watch Net collects and reports significant damage and storm surge data to forecasters and FEMA officials stationed at the National Hurricane Center. Due to COVID-19 precautions, WX4NHC operators worked from their homes. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. 
We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The University of Maine Wireless Sensing Laboratory, or WiseNet Lab, and AMSAT have signed an agreement to collaborate on building and operating MESAT-1, Maine's first small satellite. Carrying an amateur radio payload in addition to science payloads, MESAT-1 is set to launch sometime in the next three years under NASA's CubeSat Launch Initiative, which provides opportunities for nano-satellite science and technology payloads built by universities, schools, and nonprofits to rideshare on space launches. AMSAT President Clayton Coleman, W5PFG, celebrated the announcement. This is a great day for AMSAT and the University of Maine Wireless Sensing Laboratory, WiseNet Lab, Coleman said. The partnership is a true win-win for both education and the amateur radio community. The collaborative effort under AMSAT's engineering and operations teams has once again succeeded to bring another opportunity to AMSAT. MESAT-1 will be one of 18 small research satellites selected by NASA to carry auxiliary payloads into space between 2021 and 2023. The CubeSat is being developed in partnership with the University of Maine and the University of Southern Maine, along with a trio of K-12 schools. The University of Maine graduate students and University of Maine undergraduates will collaborate on the CubeSat design, development, integration, and testing. The University of Maine's WiseNet Lab, established in 2005, is involved in aerospace and space research. The lab was founded by Ali Abedi, KB1VJV, Assistant Vice President for Research and Director of the Center for Undergraduate Research at the University of Maine's campus in Orono. Lab researchers have developed the first wireless sensor network for NASA's Lunar Habitation Project and launched wireless leak detection to the International Space Station. The MESAT-1 initiative will enable K-12 students and teachers in Maine to access space data for educational and research purposes and encourage students to pursue STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, careers. MESAT-1 was awarded $300,000 from NASA the project also received $150,000 in NASA Maine Space Grant Consortium funding for graduate student research. Folding in additional funding from the University of Maine to support undergraduate student research brings the total funding to $522,000 over the next three years. AMSAT will provide a linear transponder module along with integration and operational support for MESAT-1. AMSAT's Linear Transponder Module incorporates a VHF-UHF telemetry beacon, command receiver, and linear transponder. It will be available for worldwide amateur radio use once the satellite is commissioned. The ARRL Ethics and Elections Committee has announced that it will be acceptable in pending and future ARRL Director, Vice Director, and Section Manager elections to submit nomination signatures that have been sent via email or mail under these guidelines. Petition copies must be made from the original form supplied by ARRL. The forms must be exactly the same on both sides. That is, autobiographical information should appear exactly the same in all copies. And all forms and copies must be submitted at the same time. 
Candidates may use any available electronic signature platform, such as DocuSign, HelloSign, or signed PDF. While existing by-mail procedures and policies continue in place, electronic signature platforms offer an alternative electronic option to submit a section manager nominating petition. The packet that's sent to ARRL headquarters must be complete. Multiple files or emails for a single petition will not be accepted. A valid section manager nominating petition must contain the signatures of five or more full-time ARRL members residing in that section concerned. ARRL advises having a few more than five signatures on each petition. Section manager nominating petitions may be made by facsimile or electronic transmission of images, provided that upon request by the field service manager, the original documents are received by that manager within seven days. For a valid director or vice director nomination, the original copy of a nominating petition form, as provided by the secretary, must name a full member of the division as a candidate and be signed by 10 or more full members. ARRL and Connecticut already allow for the acceptance of electronic signatures. The form must be filed with the secretary no later than noon Eastern time on the third Friday of August of that year. The submission may be made by facsimile or electronic transmission of images, provided that, upon request by the secretary, the original documents are received by that secretary within seven days of the request. Technical papers are being solicited for presentation at the 2020 ARRL Tapper Digital Communications Conference, scheduled for September 11th through the 13th. Due to the pandemic, this year's conference will be held online. Papers will also be published in the conference proceedings. Authors do not need to participate in the conference to have their papers included in the proceedings. The submission deadline is August 15th, 2020. Submit papers via email to Maddie Weinberg KB1EIB. Papers will be published exactly as submitted and authors will retain all rights. July 24th has come and gone, but 60 meters is still alive and well in New Zealand for some amateurs. The band was accessible as part of a trial period that was to have ended on the 24th. Hams in that country now have a three-month extension, meaning they are able to continue using the band until the 24th of October. Radio operators need to have a sub-license obtained from the New Zealand Amateur Radio Transmitters Society, which extends the station's primary license to include 60-meter operation. Hams who wish to participate in the trial and would like a sub-license can download an application form at nzart.org.nz. The trial period has been put in place so that the New Zealand Amateur Radio Transmitters Society Radio Spectrum Management, and the band's primary users can explore the feasibility of permitting amateur use there on a secondary basis without creating interference for primary users of that band in New Zealand. A Baltimore radio amateur has an alert member of the Anne Arundel Radio Club in Maryland to thank for responding to his call for help on July 22nd. The man, who has not been identified, apparently became overcome by the heat while out for a walk. Not feeling well and with his cell phone dead, he reached for his handheld, which he fortunately had taken with him, and put out a call on the W3VPR 147.075 MHz repeater. An AARC member who was operating mobile at the time responded promptly, gathering the pertinent information to relay to a 911 operator. 
Within minutes, the Baltimore man was receiving treatment and was able to report that everything was okay a short time later. W3VPR repeater transmissions are linked to a Broadcastify feed so that hams out of local range or away from the radios can still monitor the repeater online. You may have noticed that the call signs of amateurs in Australia are sounding a little different, and that's because Australian call signs are undergoing some changes. The Australian Communications and Media Authority has made some administrative changes to call signs, which the authorities say is, is designed to give more flexibility and options to amateurs who are given more of an active role in managing their own call sign. All licensed hams will have the ability to obtain a three-letter call sign. This change removes the association between call sign suffixes and amateur qualifications, whether a license is for foundation, standard, or advanced level. The result is a ham can now have a call sign that will last their lifetime. This includes any moves the amateur may make from one state or territory to another, a change that formerly required a change in call sign. The changes are also designed to make access to digital modes easier for foundation licensees. The foundation call sign structure has not been compatible with all modes of digital operation. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Uh, welcome. Good to see you. <sighs> What's been happening in the world of tech? You know, I keep waiting for it to all slow down a little bit. You know, like <laughs> everybody's home. Nothing's open. You can't go down to the, you know, the Applebee's down at the corner and confer about your future and all that stuff. So how how does the tech industry do it? But they seem to manage constantly coming up with new stuff. There was a socially distant speech uh, on Thursday. Mayor of Chicago was there, Lori Lightfoot, the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, wearing appropriate masks as they listened to U.S. officials and scientists unveil a plan for what they called one of the most important technological frontiers of the 21st century. Whatever could it be? Self-driving car? Could it be uh, augmented reality spectacles? Could it be a new kind of beer hat? I don't know. What could it be? It could be, according to them, a quantum internet. Quantum internet. It, they call it a second internet, which wouldn't really be that useful because we... <laughs> The idea of the internet is that everybody can talk to everybody else. The second internet, one, this is, I'm reading from the Washington Post, one that would function alongside the globe's existing networks, okay, using the laws of quantum mechanics to share information more securely and connect a new generation of computers and sensors. You know what I hear when I hear that sentence? Wah, 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 wah. What, what was that Charlie Brown's teacher used to? Wah, 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 wah. A new internet that would function alongside the globe's existing networks using the laws of quantum mechanics to share information more securely. Wah, 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 wah. 
and connect a new generation of computers and sensors. Huh? Quantum technology, says the Washington Post, seeks to harness the distinct properties of atoms, photons, and electrons. Oh, you mean like electricity? To build more powerful computers and other tools for processing information. Oh, here's the, here's the, here's the sentence. A quantum internet relies on photons exhibiting a quantum state known as entanglement, which allows them to share information over long distances without having a physical connection. Without have wah, 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 without having a physical connection, ladies and gentlemen, it's magic. Two computers talking to one another over a long distance without having any physical connection. No wires, no radio, just magic. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> we had an announcement of magic on Thursday. I'm excited. David Asqualam, a professor at the University of Chicago's Pritzker. Oh, there's that name again. He's the governor, too, isn't he? Pritzker School of Molecular Engineering and a senior scientist at the Argonne National Laboratory called the Internet Project a pillar of the nation's quantum research program. You know how much the federal government <laughs> is spending on this? 500 to 700 million dollars a year. Well, it's not a billion, you know, a half to three quarters of a billion on computers that can connect without connecting, that can talk to each other over a long distance. What is that, miles? Hundreds of yards, feet, inches? What is it? Thousands of miles without any connection. <laughs> there will be further funding announcements for the project in the future. I bet there will. Now, maybe I'm just an ignorant fool. <laughs> maybe this stuff is real. The networks promise to be more secure. Some say unhackable. Yeah, because there's no connection. What would you get into? You can't read into magic because of the nature of photons. Oh, maybe it uses light. Okay. Light, that's photons. Or other quantum bits, whatever those might be, known as qubits. Any attempt, get this, any attempt to observe or disrupt these particles would automatically alter their state and destroy the information. Isn't that the, I think that's what they call the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics. You can't observe these things. You can't look from the outside and say what's going on on the inside. It's magic. Mm -hmm. A quantum internet could also be used to connect various quantum computers with one another, help boosting their total computing power. Qua oh, here's an important sentence. Quantum computers are still at an early stage of development. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are very early stage of development eventually consumers might tap into the quantum internet to buy products with less risk of their credit card how do they know that it can't be hacked if it doesn't even exist but that's how what well, doesn't exist so it can't be hacked hmm. the mayor and the governor expressed hope there would be spillover effects for the city's tech community money flooding in you know this could take years Pieces of the network are already up and running. Oh, okay. In the Chicago area, the Argonne National Lab has built a 52-mile quantum network that soon will connect to nearby Fermilab to establish an 80-mile test bed. There's another 80-mile quantum network in New York. The plan is to slowly connect these local networks nationwide using fiber optic cable. Wait a minute, what? I thought they didn't have a connection. Satellites and drones filled with quantum communication hardware. Oh, a key piece of the hardware called a quantum repeater, still needs to be developed. It hasn't been invented yet. 
Okay. You know, I'm all for research, blue sky research and, and all that. And, you know, in the scope of things, 500 to 700 million dollars is not a lot of money. More to come. I, you know, I'd probably go over a billion in the next few months. But uh, I'm sure that, you know, in the early days of the Internet, you know, <laughs> that's my favorite line. My favorite line. These two computers, these computers could talk together without even being connected. Magic. Magic because it hasn't been invented yet. But we know it's unhackable. Somehow, anyway, I, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure it's an important development. And you know what? I urge you to save a recording of this. And in 20 years, when the quantum internet is up and running and we're all living on Mars, you could just play this back and say, what a fool uh, Leo was. He had no idea what was going on. <sighs> you can't hack an air gap. Nope. Can't hack it. Can't hack it. Because it's magic. There's nothing going on. It's just they know because a quantum entanglement. I think there's probably something called a wormhole here. They're talking to one another and there's nothing in between. It's magic. Leo, you just don't understand it. Well, that's true. I'll give you that. You just don't understand this new Internet that's going to be here any day now. We just have to invest billions in it just because, you know, we need to invent it uh, first. And then I'm pretty sure it will be unhackable once we invest billions and invent it. Money flowing into the Chicago area. I've, I'm sorry. I shouldn't mock it. This is, how, this is how big things happen. Big changes. The world as we know it is changing. They're inventing the new internet as we speak. As we speak. Isn't that exciting? You know, it'd be cool if it could even happen. I don't care about 80 miles. What if you had a machine... In, uh, in, uh, here and uh, next to it another machine and there was no wires and they were just talking to each other that would be interesting that'd be cool can you do that anyway i'm glad you were here and i'm here and i'll be here next week and i hope you'll come by and bring your friends too as we talk high tech leo laporte the tech guy are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history i'm bill Continelli, w2xoy and i'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The early 1950s were not a time of peace and security in the United States. The Korean War was in full force with the constant threat of communist Chinese intervention. The Iron Curtain cut Eastern Europe off from the rest of the free world. The Soviet Union developed their own atomic weapons. Communists, real and imagined, roamed the United States with Senator Joseph McCarthy in hot pursuit. Writers, actors, and directors suffered under the Hollywood blacklist. In other words, the fabulous 50s were still a couple of years away. Amateurs were on the air, but many feared that the FCC would eventually suspend operations as they had during World War II. Amazingly, despite what QST called a national emergency, 
There was no civil defense program in place to utilize amateur radio operators in the case of enemy attack or natural disasters. The previous civil defense program, the War Emergency Radio Service, WERS for short, had been out of service since 1949. Even in its heyday, WERS had many shortcomings. It wasn't established until June 1942, seven months after the war started. It was limited to the two and a half and one and a quarter meter amateur bands with no HF frequencies. Finally, WES operations, other than on-the-air drills, were limited to actual enemy activity. There was no provision for WERS to be used during natural disasters. The ARRL, FCC, and the civil defense leaders learned from the mistakes of WERS and were determined to have a viable radio civil defense program in place when it was needed. Thus, on December 19, 1951, at the same time that Conrad was announced, the FCC released the proposed regulations for RACES, the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Service. On August 15, 1952, the final RACES regulations were put into effect. Amateur radio operators now had a civil defense program in place that would utilize their communication skills. Before a RACES unit could be authorized, there were some requirements that had to be met. First, the local government needed a civil defense organization and a communications plan. The local plan had to be approved at the state civil defense level. Next was the appointment of the RACES radio officer. The radio officer, or RO for short, had to hold a conditional, general, advanced, or extra-class amateur license, or a first- or second-class commercial radio telegraph or radio telephone license. The potential radio officer submitted FCC Form 482 to receive the certification, provided, of course, that they passed the loyalty investigation. Note that the radio officer did not need to be an amateur. The FCC and civil defense experts determined that about 25,000 amateurs might be available for RACES authorization. However, in a full-scale national emergency, up to 200,000 radio operators would be needed. Thus, provisions were incorporated for qualified commercial class licensees to become a part of the RACES program. After the communications plan was approved and the radio officer was certified, station authorizations could be issued. Amateurs submitted FCC Form 481 to have their station license made valid for RACES operation. Novices and technicians were not eligible for RACES authorizations. The FCC and the ARRL emphasized that membership in RACES was not an invitation to continue casual amateur radio activity in a war. RACES was strictly dedicated to public service under the direction and control of the local CD unit. The frequencies initially allocated to RACES were 1,800 to 2,000 kilocycles, subject to Loran restrictions, 3,500 to 3,510 kilocycles, 3,990 to 4,000 kilocycles, 28.55 to 28.75 megacycles, 29.45 to 29.65 megacycles, 50.35 to 50.75 megacycles, 53.35 to 53.75 megacycles, 145.17 to 145.71 megacycles, 146.79 to 147.33 megacycles, and 220 to 225 megacycles. In addition, 
1750 to 1800 kilocycles, which was outside of our 160 meter band, was allowed under disaster communications services. Note that the initial frequencies did not include the 40, 20, and 15 meter bands. The 15 meter band was not yet available to amateurs when RACES was first proposed. Later, 40, 20, and 15 were added, and the 75 meter phone segment was expanded. Reaction to the RACES frequencies was mixed. Some were upset that they were insufficient and were not exclusive to RACES. Others thought of it as a diabolical plot on the part of government agencies and commercial interests to grab parts of the amateur bands for non-amateur use by non-amateur personnel. RACES was never used during an enemy attack. Over the years, however, it proved its value in countless natural disasters. Frequencies were expanded and novices and technicians were brought into the field. One interesting fact about RACES, it was designed to be a temporary service. The initial regulations indicated that it would be discontinued after the termination of the national emergency. Conrad has been gone for over 45 years and the fallout shelter signs are rusting away on the walls of abandoned buildings. Why does RACES, a temporary service, still live? The answer is found in every natural disaster that hits the U.S. Every tornado, hurricane, flood, earthquake, blizzard, and fire. Every time dedicated amateurs, working with their local civil defense officials, provide effective emergency communications, they keep a temporary service alive. Foundations of Amateur Radio When was the last time you told anyone anything about your hobby? What about someone who isn't also an amateur? Have you ever considered why there is a perception that our hobby is dying, why it's running out of people, why we struggle to get airtime in mainstream media, why attracting new members is hard, and why there is a very narrow range of understanding about what our hobby is, what it does, and how it's relevant in the world today? I'm a radio amateur. So are you. You might not be licensed yet, but the fact that you're here right now indicates a willingness to understand and learn, to participate and question. Those qualities are the fundamental building blocks that make up a radio amateur. I'm also a self-employed computer consultant, a radio broadcaster, an interviewer, a software developer, a public speaker, a blogger, author, publisher and a partner. My friends include people who are process managers, astronomers, gynecologists, mariners, tow truck drivers, communication technicians, volunteer firefighters, business owners, employees, retirees, fathers, mothers, old, young, and everything in between. Radio amateurs, one and all. When you sign up to be an amateur, you don't give up all the other things you are. You don't stop being a member of society, you just add in another box marked radio amateur, and you get on with your life. If you get into this hobby, you begin to realise that it sneaks into everyday life all the time. You use it to figure out how something works, or explain why it doesn't. You use it to trace a circuit, or to plug in your new surround sound system. You use it to encourage curiosity in your children, and to talk to your grandchildren. It's not an add-on, it's part of who you are. That's always been the case, but the perception in the general public has not been like that. It's been based around the idea that being a radio amateur is being special, being separate, being knowledgeable, studied, licensed. The reality is that the world we live in is more connected than ever, and the things we once did in isolation are now part of mainstream life. 
There is a perception that amateur radio is dying. Articles describe how we need to attract more people, how we need to appeal to children, how we need to recruit, become sexy or relevant. There's discussion about what's broken in the hobby, how we need to fix it. I think that none of those things are what is in need of investigation. I think it's us. You and I. I think we need to stop being shy about being a radio amateur, about what we do and why we enjoy it, what it means and how it works. When you talk about your activities of the day, if you made a rare contact with Tuvalu or managed to connect your computer to your radio, or made an antenna work, or climbed on a hill, or learnt Morse code, you need to share your victories and the excitement that they bring you. As a society, we're not shy about tweeting what we had for breakfast, sharing an interesting picture, or discussing an article we saw on Reddit. Fundamentally, what you do and who you are is worth talking about and sharing. So next time you talk about going camping, or discuss a barbecue you had with friends, or relate to your friends something that happened, don't be shy about your amateur radio affiliation. It's not a secret society. It's not weird or embarrassing. It's just part of what makes you who you are. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday, July 31st. This week we have two sunspots to report, and both offer good news to hams who've been patiently waiting for Solar Cycle 25 to begin. Thanks to the two new spots, the Solar Flux Index has risen yet again to 73. This isn't spectacular, but it could result in interesting conditions on the higher HF bands. On VHF and UHF, look for tropo openings on 2 meters and up in two areas of the country over the week to come. Amateurs in Indiana, Ohio, and West Virginia should see some activity, as should hams in Northern California and the west coast of Washington. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. It is that time of the year. AMSAT is holding their annual Board of Directors elections. The ballots are starting to be received. If you are an AMSAT member, please take the time to cast your vote. The new 2020 Getting Started with Amateur Satellites is available at the AMSAT online store in PDF format. If you are new to satellites or you've been away for a while, this book should help you learn the ins and outs of most of the current satellites. Should you need further assistance, feel free to join the AMSAT BB at amsat.org and click on services to ask your questions. If you're looking for Hawaii on the satellites, NH7WN is on AO7 most days. Reach out to him for a sked. In the past couple of weeks since we announced the new AMSAT Gridmaster Award for working all 488 continental United States grids on satellite, we have issued two awards. They went to Drew, KO4MA, and Kevin, and for UFO. Congratulations to both. It is not an easy task to accomplish on satellite. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO.
And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. I wanted to take some time to cover some of the common topics related to installing antenna systems on towers. First, let's examine designing and installing an antenna mount for the side of a smaller tower, like the one in your yard. I have built a few homemade mounts out of scrap pieces of steel, usually built from a three-quarter inch steel pipe about three feet long and three steel bars about one to two inches across, maybe a quarter inch thick. Material like this can often be purchased off the shelf from your local hardware store or welding shop. You will need to climb the tower to measure the sizes and dimensions of the tower, legs, and diagonal members where you intend to mount the sidearm you're building. If you do not have access to a welder, have the shop weld together the mount with the ends of the straps onto the pipe, with about a, a foot between the straps, which would be centered on the three-foot pipe. This will give you about a foot above and below the straps onto which you can side mount or end mount an antenna. Pre-drill the holes for U-bolts to mount the straps onto the tower legs. Then also do the same for the U-bolts at the furthest end of the straps from the mounting tube. This mount should be set across one entire face of the tower, so it can be hinged inward during mounting or servicing. After the mount is set in place and the antenna is set on the mount, the third support strap can be clamped to the mount and tower to reduce wobble. This is not a suitable mount for a wide tower unless you intend to mount the antenna close to the tower. The most common rule for mounting distance is one half wavelength from the closest face of the tower. If done properly, would make the tower nearly electrically transparent to the incoming or outgoing signals. If you draw a sine wave on a piece of paper, you'll notice that the voltage at one half wavelength is zero. This is why we prefer to mount antennas at multiples of one half wavelength. At two meters, that equals one meter out, or 39 inches from the antenna to the closest face on the tower. Imagine the sidearm necessary for six meters. At 224 MHz, it equals about 24 inches for a half-wave distance. If you have done all your measurements accurately at the mounting site, you can assemble the entire structure on the ground and make sure it all fits before taking any of it into the air. Since my homemade mounts usually weigh less than 15 pounds, I usually carry them up the tower with me, set them in place, then bring up the antennas and feed lines. This plan would change depending upon the height of the tower, other antennas on the tower, or how you feel about carrying cargo up the side of the tower safely. Sometimes it's easy, other times there would be too much risk of touching other active antennas, which would make hoisting the mount and antenna by rope from the ground necessary. It is obvious here that pre-planning is essential to ensure safety and reduce the number of trips up and down the tower. While I have promoted the idea of wearing cargo up the tower, I'm the first to admit that limiting trips on the tower and hours on the tower are the real goal in any job I do. Limiting both man hours and movement will also limit the risk of death, which is cool. I've seen a few different methods of securing amateur sized coax to a tower leg. The most common I've seen is regular plastic electrical tape. The biggest problem with electrical tape is its lifespan. Mother Nature works to remove the sticky from electrical tape within the first half year. I've also seen cable ties used. 
As far as I know, clear or white cable ties are not made to survive sunlight, ozone, or Mother Nature's worst, which limit these to about seven months or less, especially if they are flexed regularly. I think the black cable ties are the best for outdoor mounting. Lastly, I've seen 12-gauge solid wire with insulation cut to 5-inch lengths and wrapped around the tower leg and coax, then twisted. I know this type of scrap material to hold coax to a tower leg for decades with no visible sign of aging. I have also seen a black cable tie over several layers of electrical tape. And coax can change size and length during the day, so always allow for these changes. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL Foundation has awarded $510 to the University of Alabama Huntsville Center for Cybersecurity Research and Education. The grant will be used to get university students licensed and then integrate amateur radio communication protocols into extant models used for cybersecurity testing for industrial systems controls. Analysis will be done on how well these protocols operate in this setting, their security, and their feasibility for use in real-world industrial situations. An independent IRS 501c3 entity, the ARRL Foundation administers programs to support the amateur radio community, including scholarships for higher education, award grants for amateur radio projects, and special amateur radio program grants for the Victor C. Clark Youth and Center Program and the Jesse A. Bieberman Meritorious Membership Program. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Phil Karn, KA9Q, Randy Standkey, KQ6RS, and members of the Mount Carmel High School Amateur Radio Club in San Diego have constructed and deployed an amateur radio marine buoy in the Pacific. The buoy, which transmits whisper on 14.0956 MHz USB, has already been heard around the continental U.S., Brazil, Hawaii, Japan, Costa Rica, Australia, and South Africa. Over the past year, Randy and I have mentored the Amateur Radio Club in designing and constructing a simple marine buoy that was deployed from the RV Sally Ride on July 16th, about 700 kilometers off the coast of Southern California, Karn said in a post on the AMSAT bulletin board. It is up and transmitting whisper on 20 meters using the call sign KQ6RS, and is being received all over the U.S. and into Canada and Brazil. Karn is blogging about the project with updates. The electronics are the 20-meter whisper version of the WB-8ELK PICO tracker that has been flown on long-duration balloons. We removed the solar panels and substituted 21 ordinary alkaline D-cells wired to supply 4.5 volts, Karn explained. We estimate battery lifetime will be six months. 
Karn said that the project made use of everyday hardware. The Bowie is essentially a spar buoy, constructed using a 5-foot section of 4-inch PVC pipe with sufficient ballast in one end of the pipe to permit it to float vertically in the water. The top is closed using a sewer pressure test plug, which has a bolt in the center that acts as a convenient feed-through and antenna mounting point. The antenna is a stainless steel CB whip with a matching network. We use the C as a counterpoise, but to avoid direct metal sea water contact, we lined the inside of the pipe with copper tape to form a capacitive connection, Karn said. During initial flotation testing, the project team found that the ballasted pipe alone was remarkably stable in pitch, roll, sway, and surge, but oscillated a lot in heave, that is, up and down movement. Cross arms were at the waterline to add drag in the vertical direction to counter the issue. It wasn't our intent to mimic a religious icon, but that's where the physics went, Karn said. Because seawater was required to tune the antenna, Stankey floated the boy off a dock in Mission Bay. We tried to make this thing as rugged as we could, Karn recounted, offering his favorite saying to the students. The sea always wins in the end, but we can delay that long enough to be useful. Deployment was to be from an NOAA vessel in April, but the trip was canceled due to the pandemic. Stankey secured a trip on the RV Sally Ride, a research vessel operated by Scripps Institute of Oceanography. The first reception report was on July 16th at 12.52 UTC from Grid Square CL89EU, although the current carried the Bowie East into CL89FU at 20.32 UTC. The Bowie KQ6RS-1 can be tracked on the APRS and WhisperNet sites. Karn said the project team is already planning its second buoy, which may include two-way links, satellite tracking, and a sensor array. Produced by amateurs for amateurs and originating from Albany, New York, you're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. And finally this week. On May 25, 1928, the airship Dirigible Italia crashed on pack ice northeast of the Svalbard Islands on the return leg of a trip to survey the North Pole with 16 passengers and crew on board. At impact, one person was killed, and the cabin carrying nine people separated from the hydrogen-filled airframe. Six crew members on the dirigible structure were never seen again after the airship again became airborne. The survivors on the ice pack turned to their 5-watt wireless set, a one-tube Hartley oscillator, to put out a call for help. But it was only after nine days of trying that they were able to get the attention of a radio amateur 1,900 kilometers or 1,178 miles away. The recently published article, entitled The Shipwreck of the Airship Dirigible Italia in the 1928 Polar Venture, a retrospective analysis of the ionospheric and geomagnetic conditions, provides the gripping historical context and tries to explain why it was so difficult to establish communication for a rescue. Drawing from sources of geophysical data collected at the time and using modern theories of propagation, including some directly derived from amateur radio observations. The authors present data including sunspot count, magnetic flux, and F2 layer height, 
and take the reader through an analysis of the skywave and ground wave paths. Ultimately, the author suggests ground wave path losses likely exceed 100 dB, leaving only skywave as a potential link. In the first few days after the crash, the ionospheric path was impossible at the frequencies being used, those being 9.1 and 9.4 MHz, due to disturbed conditions. It was only after conditions had settled that communication became possible, and it only became reliable when a lower frequency was chosen. Even after communication was established, 15 rescuers were lost in the search and recovery operations, including Raoul Amundsen, Norway's famed polar explorer. Finally, on July 12, 1928, 48 days after the initial crash, a Russian icebreaker was able to reach and rescue the survivors. Amateur Radio. It's not all just dits and dars, although that's the way it started. MF, HF, VHF, UHF, SHF, AM, sideband, FM, television, digital stuff, you name it, there's something for anyone who's interested in techie things. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.